Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in sections 77 through 80. I'm so excited to talk about section 77 today. Section 77 is a Q&A on the revelation of John that we find in the Bible. Mike and I absolutely love the book of Revelation, which is really odd. I, I know a lot of Latter-day Saints struggle with you know symbolic scriptures. A lot of people struggle with Isaiah and book of Revelation. Yeah. Because we live in the time period we live, some of these things in these visions seem very strange. But if we lived in the third century AD or the third century BC and we'd associate with apocalyptic prophets and we could have these conversations, I think culturally it probably would be a lot easier. Yeah. The book of Revelation answers the question, when all the dust settles, who will be standing with the Lord at that great feast? Yeah. If I had 30 seconds to teach the book of Revelation, it would go something like this. The Lord will win. The saints will be exalted. Satan will be cast out. And prophets have visions. And in between those statements is all kinds of cool stuff, what I like to call the special effects of Scripture. But the overarching message is that God's going to wipe away our tears. We're going to go to a place which we can't even imagine, which John describes at the end with a tree that heals the nations and this crystal water that's just so pure. And to me, the idea and the image of the tree and the water at the end of the book coming to God fits right in with 1 Nephi 8. It fits right in with the prototypical temple in the Garden of Eden, where you have the water and the tree and God. So the Bible is bookended with that message. And so is the restoration. The restoration begins with that image of a tree. So, to, and, and by the way, I say bookended. Our lives are bookended with this because when we cross the veil, we come to the tree. That's our family, but that's also God. Now, this revelation uncovers what's known as St. John's Apocalypse. And the word is translated apocalypsis to the word revelation, and it means to like uncover or to unveil or to show something. And this is a text which is called an apocalyptic text. What does that mean? Well, there's Jewish ones, and then there's Christian apocalyptic texts. And an apocalypse generally falls into a couple of two types. One type describes like a journey to places that are normally like beyond the range of human experience, usually like an ascent to the heavens. And so in these apocalypses, usually the person who's brought into this ascent is shown the cosmology of the universe, the heavens, and usually there's something associated with the dead and judgment. Usually they kind of follow like a few of these patterns uh, where the visionary is brought up into God's presence. They understand heaven as a temple. The visionary achieves angelic status in a process that usually includes something like a investiture of priestly clothing, usually an anointing. And then uh, there's a phenomenon of nature as being associated with the source of the knowledge of God. But then there's another type of apocalypse, which is what we would find, for example, in the book of Daniel. In this case, it's an emphasis on history 
and it usually divides things into time periods. And some, you know, if you read Daniel, it talks about like 70 weeks or years. And in apocalypse of this type, the focus is on the time of the end times when God will intervene for judgment. Now, what I find interesting about the book of Revelation is it kind of fits both. It's talking about this ascent into heaven. For example, John sees God on his throne, but it also gets into history. And I find that fascinating because we see a lot of this stuff in the Book of Mormon. It starts with (laughs) Lehi being pulled up into heaven and having a heavenly manifestation. First Nephi 8, that whole vision is a threefold ascent, and it culminates at the tree. So there is your nature, but it also represents God, but it also represents the temple. Now, Lehi is not talking about being invested uh, with sacred vestments, but we have so many of those things in that text. Now, these texts were written to encourage the faithful as they lived in a time of great turmoil, kind of like today. Generally, these visions were written and came into being sometime, we think, between the 3rd century BC and the 1st century AD. That's kind of the time period. Isaiah's before that time, but Isaiah's doing the same stuff. Isaiah's kind of like standing between the early prophetic literature and the early kingdom and what I'm going to call the Jewish apostasy in 586. He's kind of got one hand in the old world and one hand in the new, and religion is changing. They're they're changing the temple. And so Isaiah is speaking in code, and he's kind of at the pinnacle, as it were, of these two time periods. And there's a fascinating book by Robert Murray called The Cosmic Covenant. There's a graphic, and we'll include this graphic in the show notes, where he shows Isaiah standing in this time period. Now, in scholarship, it's called the Deuteronomistic Reforms. In big picture, like there's books on this, but big picture, essentially what it is, is it's where those in power change the nature of religion from ascending to God, making covenants with God and these sacred meals and these kinds of things with God to obedience to law, that the law becomes their God. And Religion becomes more ritualistic in the Deuteronomistic reforms, and scribes and priests rule and define, and they take over prophecy and wisdom. And we see this happening about Isaiah's time period, and we see hints of this in the Old Testament. And so there's this countercultural religious movement of apocalyptic prophets, and they're dissenting groups, and they're hostile to the Jerusalem establishment. They kind of see the temple as being taken over by hostile forces. And so they write their visions, in a sense, to show that God can be seen, that we can partake of his glory. And that's what's going on in Isaiah 6. Isaiah is doing what these apocalyptic prophets are doing, but he's sitting in the time period when that's not cool anymore. And what I find fascinating is that's what Lehi is doing. If you open the Book of Mormon, these political and religious fights that they're having in 600 BC, we know this historically that this was going on. Lehi is addressing all of these things. One of the things that Deuteronomistic reformers got really into was that there was only one place where you could sacrifice to God. And so as soon as Lehi gets out of Jerusalem, he builds an altar and offers sacrifice, kind of thumbing his nose at that idea. Another idea was that you couldn't see God. And Lehi comes out and says, no, I've seen him. There's so many more things that we'll talk about when we get into the Old Testament. But just know that these apocalyptic visions have that message that you can see God. And it's like this counter-cultural movement 
And what I find fascinating in this graphic is that from this group of dissenting Jews comes a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He sits in the tradition of the apocalyptic prophets, and he teaches in a way that speaks to their soul. Now, I wasn't there, certainly, and I don't know, but I think that the people that really felt an affinity to Jesus's message have heard these messages, and that when he spoke, it resonated with them, and they they knew this was the Messiah, this was the son of David that was to come. And so back to this idea of apocalyptic visions, there is a great book by uh, Leonard Rost called Judaism Outside the Hebrew Canon. And so if you want to just pick up a book and just get a brief sketch of what's going on outside of the Jewish canon, this is a really good one. And he gets into the stuff that doesn't make it into the Bible, and he says what's in the text and a brief sketch of everything. He says that this time period was a period characterized by wars, rebellions, successful or unsuccessful wars of liberation, petty intrigues, and assassinations. By firm adherence to the law of Moses, which led to spiritual anguish and to corporeal suffering and oppression, by the invasion of Hellenism, and a tendency for rulers to ignore the individual and cultivate an insatiable lust for power. Think about that. Do we live in a time right now where there are individuals that have great power? I love that the gospel of Jesus Christ emphasizes uh, the nature of the individual. And he goes on, most Jews didn't live near the temple. They lived in the diaspora. They were in the scattered nations. Thus, they were in the midst of alien peoples who often exhibited little understanding of Jewish distinctiveness and frequently reacted with intolerance or even hatred to the Jews. This was the culture that brought about the apocalyptic visions. And these texts and these visions were messages to these Jews to be faithful in the midst of great struggle. They had a focus on the last days. And the prophet and his vision was focusing on the saving cosmic activities of the divine warrior and his counsel. So we read that in the book of Revelation where Yahweh or Jesus is a divine warrior. They saw God, judgment, and angels. They had a perspective that focused on the prophetic announcement to the world of the plans and designs of God for Israel that portrayed the divine counsel in heaven with its plans that translated into real history and real politics. Now, if you think about this, That's Joseph Smith. Not only does Joseph Smith fit into this pattern of an apocalyptic prophet, for he has many visions. He sees the heavens and angels and gods and witnesses future events and real history. He gives prophetic utterances that were testable in his time. It's a message to the world. And he had experiences of ascent. He introduced some of his followers into these experiences. I mean, section 76, but others, if you go to the witness of the school of the prophets, were introduced to God. And with the exception of like the first vision and maybe some of the early experiences that Joseph Smith had, he seems not to have been alone in his visions and revelations. And so to me, Joseph builds this bridge, like Isaiah, between two genres. Joseph builds a bridge between ancient apocalyptic tradition with its label of being pseudepigraphal and a modern age that we live in today. Joseph lives in a modern age that demands historical evidence to back up his religious claims. Whether you believe Joseph had his visionary experiences or not, one thing we can't deny, the historical evidence that others believed he had them and other people participated in them. This, to me, is one of the strengths of the claims of the Restoration. The historical evidence of his visions and the book he published to the world, known as the Book of Mormon, 
exist. They are evidence. So to me, this puts Joseph in the apocalyptic tradition of the visionary prophets of ages past and also into the historical narrative of real events in the modern age. So that's just a brief introduction. There's so much on this, but the book of Revelation sits in that tradition. And Joseph is translating the Bible. He's going through the text and he comes across this book. Bryce, he had to have had questions going, what is this? And there's so much in the book of Revelation and we love it so much. We're not going to talk about everything here, are we? No, but we're going to talk about the significance of section 77 to the Latter-day Saints. So let me give you two thoughts in that area. Why is this Q&A on the book of Revelation so significant? Well, let me turn your attention to the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is going to tell us why section 77 is so significant. So Lehi has this incredible apocalyptic vision about the tree of life. Lehi sees a tree, a building, a rod, a river, a mist. Nephi wants to know more, but instead of showing Nephi a tree, a rod, a river, a building, a mist, Nephi gets historical stories, and he's supposed to find the tree and the rod and the building in those stories. So the first story that Nephi gets, and this is chapter 11 of 1 Nephi, is the story of the New Testament Jews and that time period. So Nephi sees that the tree, the manifestation of God's love, was the birth of Christ. But he sees a building and a mist of blindness, and because they don't see the greatness of Christ, they crucify him. They were blinded to him. So Nephi sees all these things that his father saw symbolically in the history. He sees the building. He sees the tree. He sees the rod. He sees the river. Then the angel does it again in chapter 12 with the history of the Nephites and the Lamanites. And Nephi finds all of those elements in the history of his own people. The manifestation of God's love, or the tree, is shown to Nephi as the visit of Christ to the Americas, where they feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet. But both the Nephites and the Lamanites were blinded by a mist. Both of them had a building that was an imitation happiness. So Nephi sees all of those elements in his own story. And then chapter 13 is the story of the Gentiles, or more specifically, the story of America. Nephi sees Columbus come to America. He sees the pilgrims. He sees the Revolutionary War. So now that the setting has been set, we are in America post-revolution. Now he sees a book in the hands of the American colonists. And the subject turns to that book. That book is the Bible. That book, when it was first given to the Gentiles from the Jews, as Nephi sees, was pure, and it contained the fullness. And then Nephi sees the formation of a great and abominable church, which strips that book of plain and precious parts. And Nephi must have been freaking out, much like when he saw the Jews crucify Christ, or when he saw his, the seed of his brethren kill his own seed. He must have been freaking out at the thought that the pure word of God would be altered and changed and lose plain and precious parts. But the Lord tells him in 1 Nephi 13, don't worry, I have a plan. My plan is to speak to your people, Nephi, and it will be written in a book. 
And when the truth of that book comes forward, it will restore the plain and precious truths lost from the Bible. Section 77 is a fulfillment of that. It is a perfect example of how the restoration, which is the tree in our day, it is the manifestation of God's love in the latter days. The restoration, the rod in our day is not just the Book of Mormon, but all the truths that have come out. And as a fulfillment, we have this entire section of questions and answers that clarify our understanding of John's revelation, and where the Lord specifically teaches us this means that. So the knowledge that John clearly had of what those objects represented that was lost has now been restored. Section 77 stands as a testament that the restoration has restored plain and precious truths that have been lost through the apostasy. But the second point I want to make here is a little bit more intriguing to me. If you will continue in Nephi's vision, I'm in 1 Nephi 14. I'm going to start in verse 18 through 28. The angel says, look, Nephi looks and he beheld a man dressed in a white robe. And the angel said unto me, behold, one of the 12 apostles. Now, Nephi is 600 BC and the 12 apostles are more than 600 years later. So Nephi is, again, having his own apocalyptic vision in which he sees John the Beloved. Now, he's named in verse 27. I, Nephi, heard and bear record that the name of the apostle of the Lamb was John. So he sees John. And then the angel tells Nephi, he shall see and write the remainder of these things. So Nephi has a vision of the latter days. And the angel now tells Nephi that John is going to see the remainder of these things. But Nephi will as well. Go to verse 24. The things which this apostle of the Lamb shall write are many of the things which thou hast seen. So the beginning of Nephi's vision and a lot of things in John's revelation are the same thing. John's going to write many things that you've already seen, Nephi. And now notice what the Lord says. And behold, the remainder thou shalt see. So Nephi saw 2021, and who knows how far into the future. Nephi saw all the way up to and through the second coming and into the millennium. The remainder thou shalt see. Now, this is where we start to pull our hair. Ready? Verse 25. But the things which thou shalt see hereafter, thou shalt not write. Why? For the Lord hath ordained the apostle of the Lamb of God that he should write them. Now, can we all agree that a Nephi version of this vision would be much easier for us to understand? If Nephi had been allowed to write this vision of the second coming and the days before it, can we all agree that it would probably flow much easier and be much easier for us to understand? So we kind of scream at this saying, why, Lord, why? Why not let Nephi write it? But clearly the point is, 
that the Lord intended us to have John's version. The Lord wants us to study the revelation of John. I would suggest that that right there should compel all of us to spend our lives trying to understand John's revelation. Notice verse 28, Behold, I, Nephi, am forbidden that I should write the remainder of the things which I saw and heard. They were supposed to be written by John. Now, verse 23, here's my point and why I think section 77 is so significant. Wherefore, the things which he shall write, this is meaning John, John the Beloved and the Revelation, the things which he shall write are just and true. And behold, they are written in the book which thou beheld proceeding out of the mouth of the Jew. And at the time that the book proceeded out of the mouth of the Jew, the things which were written were plain and pure and most precious and easy to the understanding of men. Now, if you think that the revelation of John is no longer easy to understand, you're not alone. Many people think that. But do you see what the Lord is saying? That's the version I want you to have. Now, put those two thoughts together. The restoration restores plain and precious things lost, and that John's account is the one that the Lord wants us to have. I believe it is the Lord's intention that we put the puzzle pieces back together. He wants us to go through the labor of restoring the easy things to understand. The key to understanding John's revelation is the restoration. We have to use the puzzle pieces that have come to us in the latter days through modern revelation. Now, Joseph Smith did that in his head. And because Joseph Smith did it in his head, Joseph Smith said, quote, The book of Revelation is one of the plainest books God ever caused to be written. Bryce, I'm just going to add this with doing it in his head. Another way maybe I would say that is he saw with his spiritual eyes. I think that he, he was able to access that part of his gift to be able to see it. Yep. But we can get there. So if Joseph Smith saw the book of Revelation as easy, we can piece it back together. It's a spiritual journey. I believe the gauntlet has been thrown down and the Lord is saying, piece this together. I didn't give you Nephi's version, which would have just given you all of these things together. I gave you John's version on purpose so that you now exert the effort necessary to piece it together. What's interesting about Nephi is Nephi is easy to read, but then what does he throw at you? That's right. He throws a whole (laughs) bunch of Isaiah at us. Yeah. I mean, what does that tell you about Nephi? Nephi gets it, right? Nephi gets it and can make it plain. Yeah. So we are able to make these things plain again. They are scattered throughout modern revelation, but they are there. The Book of Mormon unlocks a great deal of the Book of Revelation. The Doctrine and Covenants does. And case in point, we now have an entire section of the Doctrine and Covenants filled with questions and answers about difficult images, and we can understand the beasts and the marks and the time periods and the ceilings and 
everything that other people find difficult in the book of Revelation because the Lord has given us the pieces. It really is simple. It can be. Anyway. It can be. And I think the whole point of the Revelation of John at the very end of chapter 6 is the question, the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? The book of Revelation answers the question, when the, all the dust settles, who will be standing with the Lord at that great feast? And that should fill every Latter-day Saint with hope and power and encouragement that your family is going to be okay. That's the message of Revelation. Now, we created 11-some-odd podcasts on the book of Revelation. They're still available. If you're interested in Revelation, we would send you back to those in which we pull from section 77 every time it answers an image question. But we are not in this podcast going to go verse by verse. We're just going to handpick a couple of them. And I will say, I don't blame you if you haven't heard them, because Bryce and I recorded them back when we were brand new, and, you know... The only way this is growing is by word of mouth. We don't promote it or anything. So uh, odds are you haven't heard those. So if you're one of those people, you're like, oh, I really want to know more about this. Go ahead and listen to them. And uh, hopefully, you know, it will, it will bring something to you that will be worth your time. So if you go to section 77, verse 6, this is what it says. What are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? The Lord says, we are to understand that it contains the revealed will, mysteries, and works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance or its temporal existence. And then Joseph asks, what are we to understand by the seven seals with which it is it was sealed? We are to understand that the first seal contains the things of the first thousand years and the second also of the second thousand years and so on until the seventh. And so... When it comes to this and the history of the world and how old is the earth, a lot of people like to really pin it down and say, which seal are we in? So my approach to this is more of like a holistic approach, that John saw the whole thing. And I'm not going to be too concerned about where I am in the time frame because I really think it's back to where the Savior says, you know, I'm not going to tell you. Just be good. Follow me. Repent and get back up. Um, if you go back and listen to like what Bryce talked about in those podcasts, we do walk you through some of those seals and pin it down to some times because clearly this is associated with real history. But I don't try to make section 77 a predictive text to predict the future. Yeah. Now, in the book of Revelation, in John's Revelation, he is called up into heaven, and he gets to see what he finds in heaven. He finds exalted worlds, exalted people, exalted animals. And then he sees the Father himself in chapter 5 holding a book in his right hand. Now, verse 1 of chapter 5 says, The book was written within and on the backside. So the book is written, and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, that's what we get in Revelation. In the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph asks, what are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? So what book would God have in his right hand, and why is it sealed? The answer, we are to understand that it contains the revealed will, mysteries, and the works of God the hidden things of his economy 
concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance. Now, that's really broad, but we know that God numbers the hairs on our very head. So I would suggest that not only is this book broad, but it's also very narrow, that somewhere in that book is a chapter of your life. Let me read this again, but let me pinpoint it down to that specific point, you, your story. That book, we are to understand that that book contains the revealed will, the mysteries, and the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning you and your life. And back to the fact that the book was written on the back side. Your story has been written. I don't want to get into agency and are you free to choose. Let's just go with this image that your story, because God knows past, present, and future, he knows your story. And you might be in a portion of the story that you question and wonder why certain things happened. That book answers every question you've ever had about why things have happened in your life. Why the cancer? Why the death? Why the loss? Why the heartbreak? The answer, his will, his mystery is written in that book. And it is my testimony that your story ends in great glory. And that when you read that book, you will understand. I can imagine that when this book is handed out, what we're going to hear all over is everyone saying, oh, that's why. Let me give you a brief example just to kind of illustrate. One of the most painful moments in Joseph Smith's life was the death of his oldest brother, Alvin. Alvin may very well have been Joseph's greatest supporter. And right when Joseph needed help, right in those critical formative days where Joseph was so alone and so persecuted, there was no Alvin. Alvin died. And I can imagine at the time, in that chapter of his life, Joseph Smith must have been saying, why in the world, when Joseph needed him, did the Lord take Alvin? That makes no sense. Now, fast forward. There are billions of people in the spirit world crying out for their work to be done. Somehow, God needs to teach Joseph about the need to do the work for the dead. He doesn't come down and say, hey, Joseph, let me just tell you about the work for the dead. He does it in a way that creates inside Joseph's heart a desire to do it. So the Lord takes Joseph Smith on a vision of the celestial kingdom. He shows him the gate that we'll walk through. He shows him the roads that we stand on. And then he starts to point out individual people, Adam and Eve, his mother and father, all of those people Joseph expected to find in the celestial kingdom. And then the Lord says, look, who's that over there? And he points to Alvin. And that was the end of the vision. And it was a brilliant way to do it because Joseph stood there dumbfounded. How did Alvin get here? Because Joseph grew up in a day and an age where it was being taught that if you die before baptism, you are lost forever. You're done. And finally, 
the work for the billions of people waiting in the spirit world dawns on Joseph Smith, and he begins the process of revealing it. Now, do you see purpose in Alvin's death now? Do you see the Lord's will, his mysteries, and why that painful moment of allowing Alvin to die was a blessing to billions of people? I testify with all my soul that your story is the same thing, that those painful chapters of your life that make no sense, when you are finally allowed to read the sealed book, will find answers and explanation And you will see the connection and the brilliance of God in knowing what was needed to be done. I testify that you will bow the knee and and stand all amazed at the love that God has for his children. The problem with the book is that it is sealed. Back to Revelation chapter 5, no one could break the seals. There is only one person who can open that book for you. You get to read the book when he opens it. And sometimes he gives us a little peek. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Sometimes the Lord opens up the book and allows you to see the wisdom in something happening. But for the most part, we wait until the book is unsealed. And so one of my absolute favorite stories comes from Marvin J. Ashton. He said, a beautiful little blind girl was sitting on the lap of her father in a crowded compartment in a train. A friend seated nearby said to the father, let me give you a little rest. And he reached over and took the little girl on his lap. A few moments later, the father said to her, do you know who is holding you? No, she replied, but you do. And then Elder Ashton says, Our trust and our relationship with our Heavenly Father should be one similar to that of the little blind girl and her earthly father. When sorrow, tragedy, and heartbreaks occur in our lives, wouldn't it be comforting if when the whisperings of God say, Do you know why this has happened to you? We could have the peace of mind to answer, No, but you do. I know that that book has the answers in it. And so the, the revelation of John is an example where John is allowed to see into the book and understand the earth's story. The revelation of John is the earth's story being revealed and how the earth is finally going to be changed and the earth is going to rest and what that means for all of us. Someday the Lord will do that with you, and he will open up that book and show you the whole story from beginning to end, and you will understand those more difficult chapters that you didn't understand at the time. So I love that insight that has come to us in the plain and precious things restored through the restoration. You know, Bryce, everything you were saying reminded me of Jacob's vision and we're moving trees all around. And I'll never forget the time you said to me, Mike, it's not about trees. It's about you. And everything for me, I just read it again and again, and I kept thinking about that. And I think that's such a powerful message. And back to the screen imagery of being in 
God's presence. A, a person that I admire very much one time said to me, Mike, what I see depends upon where I sit. And so as these prophets are brought to the throne of God where he sits and they see the earth from his perspective, they see everything played out. And I think one day when we have that vision and we see that story, it will make more sense. The seals are going to come off someday. They are. And the whole story is going to be opened. And we will see the greatness of God in our individual lives. I love that. So good. I want to talk a little bit about the middle of the answer section of verse nine. If you will receive it, this is Elias, which was come to gather together the tribes of Israel and restore all things. And then if you go to verse 14 and you look in the answer section there, it says, we are to understand that it, meaning the book that we're going to talk about in a minute, was a mission and an ordinance for him, meaning John, to gather the tribes of Israel. Behold, this is Elias, who, as it is written, must come and restore all things. And it's just kind of dropped in there, and we're going, well, what is Elias? Now, Elias is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Elijah, and Elijah's name is my God is Jehovah. That's like literally what it means in the Hebrew. So I don't think we're talking about Elijah. You see, this Elias probably could be many different people or many different things. Elias is referred to on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, but Elias is also a title for a forerunner. For example, the prophet Joseph Smith taught that when God sends a man into the world to prepare for a greater work, holding the keys of the power of Elias, it was called the doctrine of Elias, even from the early ages of the world. Bruce McConkie said, all are the Elias of the restoration. It took all of them to bring to pass the restoration of all the keys and the powers and authorities needed to save and exalt man. Now, I think there probably was a person named Elias in Abraham's day. We get hints that that's what's going on. Um, but at the same time, I think that in this context, in verse 9, where it says, if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was come to gather together the tribes of Israel and restore all things. I, I think he's a composite personage. I think Elias is a priestly figure. Now I'm going to take you liturgically to the temple and there's three priests. There's the one who's standing outside calling everybody to leave Egypt. And that typically is personified as Moses. Then once they leave and they enter into the call or the holy place, there's a priest there that is inviting them to live a higher law. And that's the Elias figure. And so that's John. John in the wilderness is an Elias. He's actually called that because he's speaking to people with ears to hear, and he's asking them to live a higher law. That's Joseph Smith. That's anybody who has been given an assignment to preach the gospel to the world, and they're preaching to people that have ears to hear. Those that are already trying to leave Egypt, and they're coming into this holy place, I, I guess in a big picture sense, like all those that are teaching the gospel to those with ears to hear are standing in the figure of Elias, asking us to live a higher law. And then finally, the third priestly figure is Melchizedek or Jesus. And that figure is the one that invites us to cross the veil into the Father's presence. And so if you read it that way, 
John is standing as an Elias and he's writing this work and no one's going to get it except those with ears to hear. And so that's one way that we see it. And I think where the Lord says, if you will receive it, this is Elias. I think one of the things this is doing is it's an invitation to have eyes to see. Joseph Fielding Smith said this, by finding answer to the question, by whom has the restoration been affected, we shall find who Elias is, and we will find there is no problem in harmonizing the, these apparently contradictory revelations. Who restored all things? Was it one man? Certainly not. Many angelic ministrants have been sent forth from the courts of glory to confer keys and powers and to commit their dispensations and glories again to men on earth. And then he cites a bunch of them that, that have come. And you can read the rest of that in the show notes from Joseph Fielding Smith. But the reason why I share that is because I think you are an Elias. When you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you bring your family together, I love where the Lord says, this is Elias, if you will receive it. And we're back to everything we talked about in section 76, where heaven is a place where God's hand is outstretched. It's not a place with gates and locks and bolts and guns and spotlights and barbed wire where God's trying to keep people out. No, it's a place where the Lord says, we want you to come upon conditions of repentance, if you will receive it. So I like that with Elias. And I'm going to push that a little bit. I'm going to extend that invitation. So brief summary Revelation is the story of the earth, just like we talked about the book has your story, but it's the story of the earth. And so we're opening up the seven seals and telling the earth's story. When we open up the sixth seal, which is the warning seal, it's the he's coming and destruction's coming, so we've got to do all we can to save Heavenly Father's children seal. And so we get the missionary work that goes forward. And then the opening of the seventh seal, which is the cleansing of the earth seal. We've got to turn this earth into a terrestrial planet and rid the planet of everything that is telestial. And so in Revelation chapter 8, we see symbolically that destructive period. Revelation 8 talks about the third part of this was destroyed, and the third part of this was destroyed, and the third part of this was destroyed. And we see massive cleansing going on of the earth as, and I wonder if the third part is a reference to the telestial, that it has to go away. Chapter 9 of Revelation, that cleansing continues to the point where John sees the third part of man killed by the fire, by the smoke, by the brimstone, the third part of men are killed. Now, chapter 10 is a fascinating chapter of Revelation and an insight into Heavenly Father's character. John just saw so many people destroyed. And then we get Revelation chapter 10. Now, if I were a Sunday school teacher teaching youth and I wanted to teach section 77 in Come Follow Me, honestly, this is the chapter I would focus on, and here's why. John just saw the destruction. Now, in John's day, they haven't been destroyed yet. Even in our day, they haven't been destroyed yet. But John sees the destruction, the future destruction of so many people on earth. And then in chapter 10... He eats a little book. Here comes a little book. Angel says, go take it and eat it. And it was bitter and sweet at the same time. 
That's it. That's Revelation chapter 10. So he sees destruction, and then in chapter 10, he eats this book. And we're left to wonder, wait a minute, that chapter doesn't fit at all. We're like, what's going on? What's going on? We're, we're talking about the story of the earth. So many people get destroyed, and then an entire chapter to have John eat a book. Well, thank goodness that we have section 77. And the Lord says in verse 14, what are we to understand by the little book which was eaten by John? Answer, we are to understand that it was a mission and an ordinance for him to gather the tribes of Israel. Now look at this from Heavenly Father's perspective. As soon as John sees the destruction of so many people, can't you hear Heavenly Father say, will you help me? John, will you help me save them? And he gives John a mission. Who is still alive today saving them? He gives John a mission, and John eats up that mission. Now, I hear Heavenly Father screaming out to every one of us, because the destruction hasn't happened yet. And he's saying, will you help me? You don't want to skip this part. Yep. And I would go find the video of Jane Milan in her October 1989 General Conference, and I would play the video. Because this is the plea of Heavenly Father. So let me read Sister Milan's talk. She stands up and she says, The day school was out at the beginning of each summer, our family went to our ranch in Wyoming. It was there that my parents and brothers and sisters and a few cousins mixed in that I learned about family loyalty, love and concern, birth and death, that one must finish a job once it is started, and to quote my father, there are only two things important, the family and the church. One year, my father was waiting for us as we arrived. He said he had a big job for my brother Clay and me to do that summer. I was about 12 at the time, and my brother was two years old. Pointing to the field by the side of the house, my father said, Do you see all those lambs in the field? I will share the money we get for the ones you raise when we sell them in the fall. Well, we were excited. Not only did we have a significant job to do, but we were going to be rich. There were a lot of lambs in that field, about 350 of them, and all we had to do was feed them. However, there was one thing that my father hadn't mentioned. None of the lambs had mothers. Just after shearing, there was a violent storm that chilled the newly shorn sheep. Dad lost a thousand ewes that year. The mothers of our lambs were among them. To feed one or two baby animals is one thing, but to feed 350 is something else. It was hard. There was plenty of grass, but the lambs couldn't eat the grass. They didn't have teeth. They needed milk. We made some long V-shaped feeding troughs out of some boards. Then we got a great big tin, wash tub, ground up some grain, and added some milk to make a thin mash. While my brother poured the mash into the troughs, I rounded up the lambs, herded them to the trough, and said, Eat! Well, they just stood there looking at me. Although they were hungry and there was food in front of them, they still wouldn't eat. No one had taught them to drink milk from a trough. So I tried pushing them towards the troughs. Do you know what happens when you try to push sheep? They run the other way. And when you lose one, you could lose all of them because others will follow. That's the way with sheep. 
We tried lining up the lambs along the troughs and pushing their noses down in the milk, hoping they'd get a taste and want some more. We tried wiggling our fingers in the milk to get them to suck on our fingers. Some of them would drink, but most of them ran away. Many of the lambs were slowly starving to death. The only way we could be sure they were being fed was to pick them up in our arms two at a time and feed them like babies. And then there were the coyotes. At night, the coyotes would sit up on the hill and they'd howl. The next morning, we would see the results of their night's work and we'd have two or three more lambs to bury. The coyotes would sneak up on the lambs, scatter the herd, and then pick out the ones they wanted and go after them. The first were those that were weak or separated from the flock. Often in the night, when the coyotes came and the lambs were restless, my dad would take out his rifle and shoot in the air and scare them away. We felt secure when my dad was home because we knew our lambs were safe when he was there to watch over them. Clay and I soon forgot about being rich, and all we wanted to do was save our lambs. The hardest part was seeing them die. Every morning we would find five, seven, ten lambs that had died during the night. Some the coyotes got. Others starved to death, surrounded by food they couldn't or wouldn't eat. Part of our job was to gather up the dead lambs and help dispose of them. I got used to that, and it really wasn't so bad until I named one of the lambs. It was an awkward little thing with a black spot on its nose, and it was always under my feet, and it knew my voice. I loved my lamb. It was one I held in my arms and fed with a bottle like a baby. One morning my lamb didn't come when we called. I found it later that day under the willows by the creek. It was dead. With tears streaming down my face, I picked up my lamb and went to find my father. Looking up at him, I said, Dad, isn't there someone who can help us feed our lambs? That is Revelation 10. That is the book that John ate. It is someone asking Heavenly Father and Jesus, is anyone listening? Will anyone help? That's what the book is. And the book is pleading with us to eat our mission up, to swallow up our mission, to say to Heavenly Father, I'm in. I am in, and I will go help you find your lambs. Whether that's in Denmark or in South Jordan, Utah, I will go wherever I need to go, and I will help you feed your lambs. That's what I would teach the youth this week. I would teach them to eat up their book and to help Heavenly Father save as many as he can as this earth is cleansed. That's good. I, I got to say, that idea of eating it, I just keep thinking about the sacrament. It's part of you. There is so much more in section 77. Uh, section 78, March 1st, 1832, Curlin, Ohio. And we're putting together the answer to this question. How does a spiritual kingdom with these keys from heaven do these spiritual things when we're swimming in temporal things. We live in this world. We have to deal with all the rules that are associated with living in this temporal sphere, but we have this grand and glorious mission. And so they put together the united firm. Now, it's going to be changed in the later revelations to read something like the order or the united order. And 
It's all over the place. It's in section 96 and 104. It's in section 78 and 82 and 92. It's all over. The nine that were in the firm were Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Newell K. Whitney, Edward Partridge, Sidney Gilbert, John Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, W.W. Phelps, and Martin Harris. And they had different stewardships. Six of them were over the revelations, and that's going to become the literary firm. And they're overseeing the church's publishing operations. Partridge and Whitney were the two bishops in the church, and Gilbert was an agent to Partridge. And so these three managed the church's storehouse in Ohio and in Missouri. I don't know if any of that's necessarily uh, needs to be discussed in a gospel doctrine class, but I think the principles that come out of this are really what matter. Yeah. Ever since the Lord identified Zion— And we know the story, how it's going to end for these early saints. We know that they're going to fail to build Zion because they weren't united according to the principles of the celestial kingdom. He's going to tell them that. And that all of the rest of us since that first generation need to learn the lesson and become a Zion people. And so we've pointed out every time the Lord seems to emphasize a celestial principle. And here he does just that. One of the most difficult. Now, we saw a very difficult one in section 64 where he says, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. That's a very significant celestial principle. Here we find another one. The whole reason we build this firm, the whole reason we're going to have a bishop's storehouse is, verse 5, that you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things. Yea, and earthly things also for the obtaining of heavenly things. Now, here's the principle. If you are not equal in earthly things, if you cannot figure out equality in this mortal world, if you can't strive and become one among so much division, you cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. The celestial requirement is that we learn to see each other as equals. That doesn't mean same. God doesn't want us to be the same, but we have to learn to be equal. Now, let me just show you the emphasis. I think this is very significant. When this earth was a terrestrial planet in the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, it had one language and one continent. There was one land and one language. Now mortality begins. Adam and Eve fall. And what's interesting is the very beginning, there was a river that comes out of Eden and immediately is divided. As if to say, the result of the fall is a divided world. And some people have and some people have not. Now the question is, can you figure out how to be equal in that environment? Now even physically, the Lord does that. What happens to the continent in the early part of the world? Genesis 10, verse 25, the land is divided. If you go to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, the language is divided. Now, here we come into that world with a divided land and a divided language. And the Lord says, can you figure out how to be equal? Not the same, because as we approach the millennium, There's the promise of the reunification of the land and the language. Zephaniah 3 verse 7 says that in the millennium there will be one language. 
Doctrine and Covenants 133 says that in the millennium there will be one land. So I find it fascinating that when the earth was a terrestrial earth in its beginning in Eden and in its end during the millennium, when the earth was in its terrestrial state, it was one land, one language. But here we are in its telestial state, divided land, divided language, as if what he's trying to say is to get back to the terrestrial glory, you have to overcome the division of this world. So some of you have one skin color and some of you have a different skin color. Can you figure out how to be equal when you don't have the same skin color? And some of you are male and some of you are female. Can you figure out how to be equal when you're not the same? Some of you are wealthy and some of you are not. Can you figure out how to be equal when you're not the same? Some of you have this talent and some of you have that talent. Some of you are born in this country and some of you were not. Some of you are Laker fans and some of you are not. (laughs) And you Laker fans, bless your hearts. We love you still. The Lord deliberately is sending us into a telestial world filled with division and saying, 78 verse 6, I'm going to paraphrase it, if you can't figure out how to be equal in earthly things, you will never make it to the celestial kingdom where we are all equal. By the way, Bryce, we see the church getting smacked down. We go to try to preach to the Native Americans because the Lord says we want to build Zion with them and we can't get in. And then the saints start publishing things saying, hey, slavery's wrong. In Missouri, we get smacked down for that. But the picture of Zion is what you're talking about. It doesn't matter. Figure it out. Figure yeah. out how to be equal. And so I think the quest for us today is start with yourself and your innermost circle. Are you and your spouse, even though you're different and not the same, do you treat each other as equals? Or does one of you look down on the other? Do you do that with your children, with your neighbors, within your ward, within your community? Do you do it at work? Do you remember those three words that came out of the Book of Mormon? As soon as you have more, you begin to think that you're better and that you persecute other people. That's failing to do this. Can we be equal in earthly things? so that we can obtain heavenly things. So if we're not the same in our incomes, can we figure out a way to be equal? Or do you constantly see yourself as being better because I have more? There is the challenge for mortality. And if we're ever going to be a celestial people, we have to overcome division. In this time period in the 1830s, a bunch of the states are struggling with the beliefs of slavery. We have the Native Americans being pushed off their land and and the Lord up in heaven just scratching his head saying, oh, we've got to establish Zion. And then, you know, this is the, the context of the literary firm. The idea in this revelation is essentially this. Hey, whatever money the literary firm makes, the first thing we're going to do is take care of these people that are giving their all to constructing these texts, the print shop and W.W. Phelps and all these people making sacrifices. And then whatever's left, we're going to take care of the poor 
But the principle behind all of this is this isn't a means to make Joseph rich or W.W. Phelps rich. This is a means whereby we can do the work of the Lord. Yeah. There's a whole lot of phrases in the Book of Mormon where you see this idea. Let me read a couple of them. First, let's go back to where Alma separates from King. Remember Alma the elder who was a priest of Noah and then separates from King Noah? Now, what kind of government should they establish as they separate from King Noah? And the Lord says to him in verse 7 of Mosiah 23, It is not expedient that you should have a king, for thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not esteem one flesh above another, or one man shall not think himself above another. Jump to Mosiah chapter 27. There was a strict commandment throughout all the churches that there should be no persecutions among them, that there should be an equality among all men. And then jump to Alma chapter 1. I love this one. I pray for the day when this is true. When the priest left their labor to impart the word of God unto the people, the people also left their labor to hear the word of God. And when the priest had imparted unto them the word of God, they all returned again diligently unto their labors, the priest not esteeming himself above his hearers. For the preacher was no better than the hearer, neither was the teacher any better than the learner. And thus they were all equal. Now, were they the same? No. That is the celestial attribute. Speaking of the book of Revelation in this podcast, I love that when John first walks into the celestial kingdom and sees Heavenly Father's house, the thing that catches his attention is the chairs. They were in a circle. That fascinates me, that the first thing that John noticed in the celestial kingdom was that the chairs are in a circle. There's no head to a circle. There's no, I'm more important. Back in 78 where the Lord says, if you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourselves by doing the things which I have commanded you and required of you. We have to esteem all individuals as equals. We see it in the temple. Yep. Because I could be sitting next to a millionaire and you'd never know it. That's right. Say Wearing the same color, same outfit. In fact, one time I was in the temple, and I'm not going to say who it was, but I was sitting next to someone who was very famous, and you wouldn't know. Yeah, there's the message. So back to the temple, I'm going to read 14, 15, and 16, because to me, it's all temple. So here it is, that through my providence, notwithstanding the tribulation which shall descend upon you, that the church may stand independent above all creatures beneath the celestial world. The Lord wants to make his church a kingdom independent of anything else. Now, we all often talk about the church being a church, but it's also a kingdom. And so kingdoms build wealth. That is the Lord's vision. And it's associated with the temple. And the kingdom concept is also associated with the king. So look in verse 15. That you may come up unto the crown prepared for you and be made rulers over many kingdoms, saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Zion, who has established the foundations of Adam on Diamon, who has appointed Michael your prince, and established his feet, and set him upon high, and given unto him the keys of salvation under the counsel and direction of the Holy One, who is without beginning of days or end of life. To me, the reason why these are associated with the temple is because some of the words that are used in verse 15 and 16, you have crown, 
you have kingdoms being made rulers, and then you have this really interesting phrase in verse 16, Michael the Tsar or the prince, and he is having his feet established and set upon high. Now, that is a big thread that you can pull on. And so in the show notes, we put together a bunch of stuff from just excellent faithful scholars trying to help us understand and see how much of this is temple, that that has to do with the time when Adam and Eve had their kingdom established, but it's also future for when Jesus has his kingdom established, as well as when you have yours established. You see, in the temple, the throne was the permanent fixture that sat between the two huge cherubim. The Ark of the Covenant, which was portable back then, represented God's throne and was placed in front of the throne. There was a throne in the Holy of Holies and became an integral part of it. After Jehovah symbolically left the earthly temple to be enthroned in his celestial temple, the Ark of the Covenant no longer represented the presence of God, but now it represented his authority. And so as such, it, the Ark, became the footstool of the throne in the Holy of Holies. Therefore, the king, or in this case, Michael, as it were, the prince of the world, having his feet established in the Holy of Holies, the cosmic order is established, meaning that he's on the throne. Now, Adam and Eve are on the throne as the king and queen of the world. Big picture, it's Jesus. Even bigger picture, it's heavenly father and heavenly mother. But as we make those covenants, we become kings and queens. The closest thing I can think of that would even approximate this, but it really is the front end of the thread. Imagine a long thread. And at the conclusion is when your feet are established. But the beginning of the thread is when a man and woman kneel at the altar and they make those covenants. And if you listen really careful to the words used in there, It's all associated with having their feet established as kings and queens because they will finally be anointed to become such, and that's way future. And so that phrase that he's having his feet established is a code word that has everything to do with the temple. Now, in this case, it's talking about Michael, the Tsar or the prince, because it's Adam and Eve as the prince and princess or the king and queen of this earth, but it also typologically is you go to the temple and think about what it means. And it's beautiful and it's awesome. And I'm referencing it mostly to defend Joseph because he's constantly getting castigated saying that he's just cribbing masonry and that all the temple is just a bunch of symbols from a fraternal organization. And I'm thinking, no, read the Doctrine and Covenants. So anyway, I'm I'm kind of passionate about that. Um, I love the stuff about being of good cheer and being little children. And Bryce, talk about those verses. Yeah. Going back to that idea of being equal in order to be celestial people, that is a hard concept, and that may seem impossible to do. So I love how the section 78 ends, and this is the hope of all of us. The Lord says, "'Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye are little children.'" And you have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands and prepared for you. You cannot bear all things now. I think that's his subtle way of saying, hey, I I recognize you're trying, but boy, you're not there yet. You cannot bear all things now. That's a fancy way also of saying you're not doing all that you're required to do. Nevertheless, 
Be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours, and the blessings thereof are yours, and the riches of eternity are yours. My translation of 18 is show up and have a good attitude, Just and I'll, I'll get you there. Hold his hand and never let go. Yeah. Sections 79 and 80 are really brief. Yeah, calling different people on a mission. But anytime you can find in the Doctrine and Covenants a revelation that relates to the situation you're in, you can accept the promises and the direction given as if it were a revelation to you personally. So in section 78, the Lord calls Jared Carter to go again to the Eastern countries, and he gives him this promise. And I would therefore say this is the same promise given to any missionary sent to any corner of this earth. He says to Jared Carter and every missionary, verse 2, I will send upon him the comforter, which shall teach him the truth and the way whither he shall go. That is not Jared Carter's promise alone. That is to everyone in Jared Carter's situation, which is going out and preaching the gospel. You can expect the comforter to be with your son or your daughter or with you as the missionary. That is the promise. I will send upon him the comforter, which shall teach him the truth and the way whether he shall go. The Lord is going to take care of them and comfort them and teach them and guide them and walk with them. I love that, Bryce. Thank you so much for spending your time with us this week as we've gone through these sections. We will see you next week when we cover sections 81 through 83. Have a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.